0: Welcome, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. Uh, And a big thanks to New America for Welcome MS into their new home, their offices are quite lovely. I'm Jade Floyd, Senior Director of Communications at the Case Foundation, uh, and I'm really excited to be with you guys here at our fourth COM Network DC gathering. So we're excited to have Alfred Ironside, uh, the the VP of Global Communications at the Ford Foundation with us here today. He's going to be speaking with us a little bit later, Um, but before we hear from him and our moderator Fuzz Hogan, who's also one of our hosts tonight, I just want to take a few minutes to kind of highlight the communications network and the great work that they're doing within the social sector. So as all of you know in the room, there's true value in using strategic comms to uh, help advance our organization's missions uh, and to extend our impact. And that's why the Communication Network exists. It unites more than 800 foundation professionals and nonprofit professionals, as well as consulting firms across the United States. And they provide exclusive in-person learning sessions, webinars, um, and salons with organizations like NPR, Medium, the Ad Council, and many more. So we're excited to share that their annual conference this year is headed to Detroit. Um, Just a note, uh, they're currently seeking sessions for the Comm Network event in Detroit that's coming up. The deadline to enter for those sessions is June, April 22nd, so you can apply for those at comnetwork16.org forward slash breakouts. You can talk to both myself, Sean in the back, um, or uh, any of your hosts tonight, and we'll give you more details on that. So we really hope you consider joining us in September in Detroit. I'm especially excited to head to the Motor City to hear from the many foundations that are really doing uh, impactful work to revitalize the region there. Uh, Last year's gathering was a tremendous success. I was able to moderate Soledad O'Brien on stage, uh, as well as hear from Dr. Clarence Jones, who was uh, a speechwriter for Martin Luther King, and he was also the man who snuck out uh, the many pieces of the letter uh, from Birmingham jail from MLK. So we will hopefully hear from many other voices and communications who were truly as instrumental as both Soledad and Dr. Jones. And just a reminder, Communications Network, and be sure to grab a bag before you guys head out today, uh, in the back, a tote bag to take as a thanks from each of us. Um, Be be on the lookout for the newest edition of Change Agent. That's the biannual print journal from the Communications Network. Uh, This May issue is going to include features from the Annie E. Casey Foundation and one of the New York Times Upshot contributors. And also please check out Stanford Social Innovation Review uh, and read the network's new series. They're soon gonna feature pieces from both the Heinz Foundation, World Wildlife Fund, Spitfire, as well as the Clinton Foundation. So why local? Why are you guys all in this room today? Um, we have groups now, uh, communication network local groups in several chapters. DC was the first uh, and we're really excited to claim that title and We have others forming in both Denver and LA. uh, One in Boston, Seattle, and Michigan is coming soon. And each of these networks are really working to build a community of communicators uh, and share our learnings, our big successes, as well as our failures. So if you know anyone in those regions, be sure to let them know that there are events that are taking place just like this within their local area. And we're going to be hosting another gathering here in DC. This is our fourth. uh, And you should be on the lookout for that in our meetup group, as well as the email uh, listserv from the Calm Network folks. So we're going to get started. Uh, First, I'm excited to welcome our host, uh, Fuzz, who is actually, this is his office, so I'm not really welcoming him. Uh, But he is going to be moderating you tonight. Fuzz is a managing editor here at New America, where he oversees the communications, the events, as well as editorial. And he works to amplify the more than 150 scholars and fellows across more than 15 policy programs. And when you guys w- walked in, you saw a bookshelf that had a number of the fellows uh, who have published publications and I take a look at it. It's really impressive and there's many books I was taking a photo of that I'm like I got to get this on Amazon. So, you know, fuzz spent most of his career at CNN. He was a producer and he covered a wide range of stories including the O.J. Simpson trial, the Oklahoma City bomb- bombing, and as a news executive, he oversaw the daily coverage of Hurricane Katrina and the investigation into Al-Qaeda, which earned him a Peabody. So, we're very thankful, fuzz, that you welcome us into your new America home. And our very special guest tonight is Alfred Ironside. Alfred's Vice President for Global Communications at the Ford Foundation, where he leads their Strategic Communications Unit that supports the foundation's diverse programs in the United States and in 10 regions across the globe. He joined the foundation from the United Nations, where he served as spokesperson for the countries in crisis and then as Chief of Media Relations for UNICEF. He also joined the foundation from the United Nations, where he serves as spokesperson, oh, sorry, See that messed me up, I'm sorry about that. He began a storied career as a reporter at several radio stations, both in Indianapolis and in Philadelphia, his hometown. And in the late 80s he spent time in the US Foreign Service as a press officer stationed in East Berlin. And he won a commendation for his work there during the Berlin Wall Crisis. He also serves as chairman of the board for the Communications Network and they are very lucky to have him. Alfred's a fearless innovator within the social sector. He's a true communications sage that we're honored to have with us tonight. So please join me in welcoming him to the stage. And as soon as he concludes his talk, him and Fuzz are gonna have a short moderated discussion and then open it up to you guys. So welcome, Alfred.
1: Well, thank you for that um, really Daunting introduction. Um, it's a pleasure to be here. I'm interested in asking you a few questions before I get started. How many of you are uh, aff- affiliated with a foundation? By round of applause, round of applause. Okay. Good, not that many. Um, and how many of you are affiliated with a nonprofit that is not a foundation? By round of applause. Okay. And how many of you are not sure why you're here, or you're just here for, okay. I always like to start with a little applause before I start talking, because then after that, it's all downhill from there. Um, I just want to say thank you for the invitation to be here. I am a huge fan of the Communications Network. Um, it's a collection of 800 incredible people across the country who do what you do, which is communications in the social sector. And um, we love gatherings like this because really the network is about learning together. Um, So it's really a pleasure for me to be here tonight, and thank to all of you for coming on this beautiful evening. When I lived in D.C., I'm pretty sure I would have blown this off to go play softball somewhere, so I'm really, really grateful you're here. When Mikhail Gorbachev was still president of the Soviet Union, he was receiving uh, a Western dignitary, and as is customary in such cases, uh, the two men came out after the meeting to uh, greet the press corps, the local and foreign press. And Gorbachev called first on a member of the Western media, said, um, yes, uh, thank you, Mr. Gorbachev, uh, sir. If you were to describe the state of the Soviet economy using just one word, one word only, what would it be? Gorbachev thought about this for a minute, and he said, good. Well, sir, yes, thank you, <laughs> thank you, Mr. Gorbachev. But, sir, if you could describe the state of the Soviet economy using two words, what would it be? Gorbachev thought about this and he said, Not good. <laughs> if you were to ask me to use two words to describe the state of communications in the social sector, or even just one word, one word, I would, of course, say, good. It's good. If you were to ask me to use two words to describe the state of communications in the social sector, I would say, look, communication is not about dumbing things down. I'm not going to give you two words. <laughs> communication, Smart communications is about connecting with people and moving them. And in that sense, I, if I were to do a five word answer, it would be, we can always do better. And so I'd like to share with you a few things that um, we're trying to do better at the Ford Foundation. Uh, I don't have uh, fancy um, blogs or websites or great campaigns that we've been doing, although we've been trying to do those too. What I want to share with you um, has to do with getting better at using language, language that does connect with and move people. And when I'm done with that, then I'll subject myself to a grilling by Fuzz and all of you, which I'm looking forward to. So for a couple of years, um, the foundation has been working with Hathaway Communications, they're based here in D.C., and Doug Hathaway and his team, on a very substantial national research project um, that we call What It Means to be American. And the premise here is that the communications work that all of us do, whether in a foundation or a nonprofit, um, as advocates for uh, a better place, um, better lives, better systems, All of that work really depends on understanding uh, where your audience is, what they think, what is their mindset. Not just their view of any specific issue, there's tons of polling and tons of research that can tell you about that, but more fundamentally their ideas about who they are, uh, what they want from the country, and how they think about fairness and justice and decency. So we're undertaking this big national research to get at insights around what lies at the center of these three things. What's the sweet spot for us? How do we connect with Americans today? What do they believe? What do they really want for themselves, for the country? And what's their vision of a, of a just society? We're deep in this multi-phase research to get at these fundamental questions. And the good news is that um, by this fall, we'll have um, a lot of <laughs> material to share. Um, the bad news is I don't have that to share with you tonight, because we're only midstream. But the learning that we're doing along the way is incredibly valuable in itself, and I wanted to share that with you. It may seem rather elementary, but we're discovering that some of this elementary stuff is really quite profound. Our big takeaway um, is that all of us who care about great communications, to move people and connect with them, um, there's, there's a tremendous amount of room for us to improve. So our brains are, are hardwired to take in information in the form of story. You've heard that before. All the brain science in the last decade is really helping to pull this apart and help us understand why that's true. It is true. This is this very standard narrative structure up here, very recognizable. It starts with people, um, the goals that those people have, the challenges that they have to overcome to achieve them, and then, of course, um, the solutions or the ways they overcame those problems. That's a very classic story structure and you see it embedded in just about every kind of narrative that um, we interact with. And it seems like basic stuff, but our research with focus groups, um, with uh, big quantitative surveys, uh, with ethnographic interviews, is showing that um, we in the social sector, including where I work, very often mess up this basic storytelling structure. We think we're doing it right, and we're not doing it right. So for example, we've learned it's not good enough to simply put people uh, in the story that we're telling to audiences. Audiences don't relate to people in an amorphous way. They relate to individuals. Uh, And so the lesson for us in our own communications is to focus on individuals when we're telling stories. In a way that the audience um, can clearly distinguish them. So, people prefer to see themselves like this, not like this. They don't like the amorphousness of this picture, if you are using images to get at this. If you're using words, um, the story is the same. It's quite basic. These are examples from our own recent material on our website, our blogs, our um, stories that we're telling in speeches working to reach each child's needs instead of working to raise test scores for all children. It seems so elementary, but all the surveys show us that when you talk about individuals, people can connect and relate. When you talk about amorphous masses, you're already losing your audience. And I think the more profound insight here is that as we know Americans are all about individuality. And they don't like it when the individual um, can't, is not visible. They want individuals to thrive. And they want them to do well. And so when it comes to um, talking about individuals and uh, what they, who they are, it's really important to not use demographic categories to describe people, but to use uh, positive personal characteristics. Um, We know what some of those are from the research because 70% of Americans said being responsible, loyal, hardworking, family-oriented were extremely important to them. And this is not a poll. This is this deeper kind of research that we've been conducting over the last two years, verifying this in a whole series of ways. These ideas are really important to people. So, for example, when we're talking about um, people we serve or people we're trying to work with, It's much better to talk about them as hardworking, striving to stand on their own two feet, trying to get ahead, working to make ends meet. These kinds of words are received far better than when we talk about people as the product of their conditions. Poor, low income, marginalized, and vulnerable, or some combination of that, you know, uh, low income women of color from a marginalized community. This is language you may recognize. Uh, We all use it. One of the things that um, we did a little over a year ago when we embarked on this research was we did interviews with about 40 of the organizations that Ford supports to see if we were doing something that would be of value, if this research would be meaningful in what they did. Yes, 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 came the reply. It's Good, we started to do it. But we wanted to establish a little bit of a baseline for ourselves, so we did a blind audit of the 40 organizations' communications. Their website, their press material, their speeches, whatever we could find, Publicly, um, interviews in the media, and we did a blind audit. They didn't know we were doing it, and I don't know actually. Um, I can't distinguish any of the individual organizations, but the telling the findings were telling because um, we're, we're not good at this. Surprisingly, we think we're good at it, but we often mess it up, and that's why I wanted to underscore it. Um, we're trying to get better at this ourselves. These are two recent blog posts on the Ford um, blog. The first one, we get it right. We're talking about a community's perseverance and determination. The one on the right, it's back to poor farmers and vulnerable communities. And people can't relate to that because as it turns out this kind of um, categorizing language is distancing from the audiences that we're trying to reach and connect with. And when you think about it, no one thinks of themselves this way. I'm a poor person of color. No one thinks of themselves that way. So I don't know why we impose this language in our communications, we shouldn't. Um, We should really go back to things that people, all people in our audiences can relate to, which is the characteristics of the people we're talking about. What they're doing uh, and who they fundamentally are, not what categories they're in. Those two lessons are about how we talk about people, but also when you're talking about goals. There's another area where um, things can get very muddy and murky. I'm speaking from a foundation point of view. Uh, We're learning to get better at this to describe the work we're doing in relatable terms that also bring in people's aspirations. It's not easy. Um, So here's a, a case in point. On the left in the blue, this is from a recent blog. People should have good jobs, good schools, a chance for a fulfilling, productive life. The research shows that people respond incredibly to concrete language like this, because they can relate to it. They understand, they can visualize what a good school, a good community, a good job is in their own lives. And they're like, yeah, I'm like that. When we shift over to this language, which was also from a recent blog post, where this had to do with, um, I think it had to do with uh, criminal justice, and the sentence was three times this long and much more gobbly cookie and you couldn't read it so I just reduced it to this. Pursue comprehensive policy reform that's grounded in equity, public safety, and proportionality. (laughs) Um, So communicating um, what people's goals are and what your goals are and working with them is really important in a way that's aspirational and relatable. The problems and then the solutions. Um, you know, we dwell so much in complexity, I think, in our work in the social sector. Um, we really know how overlaid and, and interconnected the problems are and we tend to talk about it that way. So learning how important it is to find ways to make big problems, make intuitive sense and seem solvable is really, is really key. Here's a great um, example from some messaging research we did at the time of the financial crisis. On the left, this was on the left side, in the heat of the crisis, it was no use to talk about banking systems and complex debt instruments and all those things that people couldn't relate to that, understand what the heck happened. Um, instead, we found that what resonated with people, and this was um, done through research, was when you explain the problem in terms of things they do get. The problem was caused by fast talking mortgage brokers and Wall Street speculators looking to get rich quick that resonated. And this was um, at the time there were 25 organizations that Ford was supporting who were working on uh, financial services and they were all clamoring for some way to talk about the crisis that um, people could relate to and understand. And so we did a quick round of research and that's what we came up with. Um, And a whole bunch of other stuff that they all used and employed and we tracked in the media. You could see it rising and rising and how it was being used and how it was breaking through. So it's not just research, but then it's tested and put into use and found to be working. Over here, we're still struggling with how we talk about um, data surveillance on the Internet. And you can see for yourselves how hard to relate to that issue is. So we have to get better at that, and we're working at that. I could go on. I'd rather get into conversation. I think the main thing I wanted to share with you um, is that there is a tremendous body of research coming down the pike that will yield all kinds of practical everyday lessons like this. About the basics of how we communicate and the story structure that we use and employ in our work. But will also reveal a tremendous amount of insight about what it does mean to be American today. Um, And the good news is a whole bunch of these current interim insights um, will be made available in the next day or two on the communications network website. Totally free, totally downloadable to everyone in this room whether you're a member of the network or not. And we'll send out an email um, to make sure that you get a link to that. But the other good thing is that Doug Hadaway and I mm, just agreed to uh, do a session at the Communications Network Conference in Detroit to really share the deeper insights of what it means to be American. And to introduce that uh, to you and everyone else who's there so that we can start Um, using it. And I I think, for me, this is research that is ultimately, it wasn't for the Ford Foundation, it wasn't for how we communicate, it really always was about the 1500 or so organizations that we support in the United States um, and a contribution we could make to the field. So we're going to be tremendously eager to share it with you when we get to that. Um, finally, as this stuff reflects it, it it's, um, it's really important that, uh, that we understand how much better we can do and even the basics of our work. That's why the communications network exists. Um, that's why we invite groups together for talks like this. So I'm really grateful you're here. I look forward to engaging in a conversation with you now. Fuzz, you want to come on up and up be- let the grilling begin.
2: He would not let me pregame the questions with him. So I will actually ask some questions that are mostly tame, but I'll try to challenge some of the, how it works in an organization is the question most of us are asking. Like, okay, that's great. How does it work? But I'll start with the easy one. I talk a lot about, you talked about it while I was in journalism, and now English class versus history class. One way to sort of describe that difference was when you have narrative character. Maybe not conflict, which is an English class thing, but you have sort of motion and stakes. That seemed like the same way to break down the two things you're talking about, history, English class versus history class. The, the left side of your screen, or the right side of your screen, as the audience talked about it, saw it, was history class, yes. while this was English class.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, I think the, under, the whole idea behind this, what it means to Amer- be American
2: research, is um,
1: that to be effective communicators, we really need to know where people are. Um, not what we imagine them to need to hear but what they are ready to hear and uh, again speaking from the vantage point of a foundation that works with a large group of organizations across the country um, we are astonished continually um, at the resistance there is um, by advocacy organizations at changing the language they use the messaging they're using uh, because They've used it for a long time or it's born out of a serious analysis of the issues, more of the history class. Uh, And um, building a practice where you learn to translate that rigor and that depth of meaning into something that people can relate to um, is really the trick and that's the
2: purpose of this whole undertaking. Yeah. Um, so then the question most of us are asking, I'll ask the obvious questions and you guys can ask the less obvious questions. Um, how do you change that culture internally? I mean, you just sort of outed some of your staffers here. Oh, right? yeah. Like, how do you uh, get folks, and we do this here at New America, like yeah. getting those folks who want to write the, yes. or, or already have written the thing, Yeah. right? Okay, now we want to turn this piece into a piece for Slate or for... The New York Times or for whomever so here again is a question to the room how many people round of applause
1: have struggled trying to communicate a better way of communicating something with someone who's on the program side of whatever organization you're working with okay. Okay. Right.
2: right. my whole front row here yeah
1: <laughs> <laughs> so yeah um, there's a couple of things that we've done inside our team. So we have regular monthly learning lunches. We have, uh, like this, I mean, we've brought some of the same, we had the wonderful people from Atlantic Media Strategies come and talk to us not long ago. And we bring a lot of people to come and talk to us so that we're continually refreshing our thinking. We, um, because not everyone on my team is exposed to the learning that we're doing in this big research, because um, they're busy doing other valuable stuff, uh, we made a point of having Hadaway folks come in and do workshops with us to introduce us to both the depth of the thing, but also this kind of basic learning. And, um, and we workshopped it. We, that's where these examples came from. What are we doing well? What aren't we doing well? So b- being deliberate about this stuff, even within our own communication shops, is really important.
2: Have you found it teachable?
1: It is teachable. Um, and the way that we found it um, teachable is by bringing program colleagues into the focus groups where their messaging is going down in flames. And How do you measure flames? Do you have a, <laughs> there a, me- there a spreadsheet somewhere? Yes, that we have a metric go- for that, absolutely. Yeah. Um, when their faces are lit up in orange horror, there's clearly a flame. <laughs> um, but, and this is easier and easier because most uh, focus groups facilities now stream live, and so you don't have to be present in the little room. You can have people watching all around the country. Um, so we've been doing that with some of our more recent, and we're going to do it this summer. We we're thinking of inviting not only program staff in our institution, but program um, folks from many of the organizations that we think would most benefit or be most um, ready to adapt this kind of stuff. But in cases where we've done it, um, one, of the, one of the ones we did in the last couple of years was one of the toughest. Uh, we had a program officer working on the racial wealth gap, um, really intractable issue. And the research was showing that um, People are extremely resistant to believing that there is a racial wealth gap. Doesn't matter what data, what doesn't matter what you put in front of them. They simply reject the idea. It's some frame in their mind won't allow them to take that in because of the opportunity story of America or whatever it is. Um, and so the organizations we support, 20 or 30 organizations in this field, were really struggling with the research numbers on the paper. But yeah, but see, but there, but uh uh-huh. And then we took them to the focus groups, and it changed everything.
2: So same, even in the, it's a meta moment, you use the narrative to tell the story the statistics couldn't tell. Yes.
1: Yes, that's precisely. It. Yeah. Because exactly right. When people see other people talking and listening and what it connects to in their own minds and hearts, that
2: change. it's a transformative experience. And they meet people who aren't like themselves, who aren't fellow scholars in the field. Right. Who,
1: yeah. and, and that's the other thing. And you all know this. Breaking out of, um, of the
2: jargon is really hard. Um, so yeah, we have to do it with program colleagues as well. So what does this all look like if I'm a consumer or a practitioner, a recipient of the Ford work, and you can pick one or prioritize one? Like, what is the, when, This language seems great to this room, we're all in, we're all applauding, it's all great. What, how does so I'll tra- I'll your your it? So I'll translate it a
1: little bit for you for end users and audiences right. that we're trying to reach. Because, um, like I said, this seems basic to us, but we don't do it as much as we think we do. I challenge each one of you to go back and look at your work and test it against some of these and see. Um, That's what we did and we were, um, you know, properly um, put in our place. Um, But for the people we're trying to reach, and we have a broad spectrum of audiences that we and the organizations we support are trying to reach. It could be from communities of affected people that they're trying to reach, Um, it could be Um, engaged Americans who are trying to drive policy change of one kind or another. It could be policymakers themselves, influential people in this here town. So there's a range of audiences, but what we found is that these lessons apply no matter who you're talking to because it does go back to these core um, the way our brains are hardwired to listen, to learn, to take in information, to exchange ideas. Um, So one of the things that um, has been learned through brain science uh, is that uh, we really have lazy brains. Um, Guilty. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the brain is sort of on a default survival mode it uses as, l- as little energy as possible use energy only when it absolutely must so if it encounters anything that's work its t- typical default is to not do the work so if the language we use is an intuitive for people, where all right from the get-go, their brains are starting to shut off. So using everyday language like this, it's 50 cent words, not million dollar words, 50 cent ideas, not million dollar ideas. Um, It works with every kind of audience um, that we're trying to to reach. And so it's not, you know, I I did a presentation like this in front of our trustees a couple of years ago. And one of the um, board members who runs a big important nonprofit uh, in the country, and is a wonderful, thoughtful man, said, he's from down south, sounds like you're trying to manipulate people. <laughs> and he was very skeptical of it. No, we're not trying to manipulate people, we're trying to understand them. Right. We want to know what they think and, who, and where they are. And speak to them in language that they will relate to, intuitively. And so there's a, it's not, you know, you can, you know, we're not going down the path of Goebbels here. It's just understanding our, uh, the people we care about and want to communicate and reach.
2: So I'll be nervous in a different contexts. We're a think tank that does journalism, right? So we talk a lot about how, uh, th- how much change we want to own. Journalists don't like to own change, right? Ford Foundation has undergone some pretty, by the way, very impressive communication strategy around their Ford Foundation, rethinking the, think tank, rethinking the foundation. Talk to me about taking ownership over that change, maybe more than you have before how this plays a role, and how comfortable it is as an organization to sort of start to maybe not manipulate people like my southern friend thought, but just push change more than just fund and hope. That's probably an unfair characterization of what Ford Foundation used to do. But no,
1: no, it's not an
2: unfair characterization at all. There's been a big shift. Um,
1: it's, this is a really interesting, I find, dichotomy in the social sector between the organizations on the front lines, like most of you, and the funders in the background. I think uh, having come from the Red Cross and um, UNICEF in past um, roles, those organizations understood how critical communications was to the enterprise, right? because you're fundraising and you're trying to move things and make things happen in a community. Um, And for foundations, that has long not been the case. It was always, we're in the background. the, The organizations we support are in the foreground, and we don't want to get in their way and mess things up. I think over the last decade or so, um, even this sleepy, sleepiest of sectors, um, has um, joined the 21st century and realized that won't cut it. Uh, because if you're not defining yourself, someone else is defining you. Everything is um,
2: open for debate and everything is,
1: everyone is fair game.
2: Um, Have you lost credibility with certain constituencies because you're starting to get out of that safety zone? That's no. I, mean, great, right?
1: I think that change was really started about a decade ago. Uh, and now it's mostly embraced and understood. Um, and there's been a sea change really in the people who are leading foundations and who are um, uh, coming to do work at foundations. So I think that's more of a communication savvy uh, group. But what I was going to say about change in any organization, um, of yeah. again. You know, if the CEO believes in communications and then is good at doing it and wants to do it, you are in a great place. If you have a CEO who believes in communications but is not good at doing it, eh, that's a harder place. At least you have some leeway. If you don't have a CEO who believes
2: in communications, you're really... It's weird to be a communications director. <laughs> the, uh, I have one more question, which yeah. is a softball question about that, okay. which is, you guys did tr- dramatic uh, I mean, I saw you everywhere for about for a period of time. What was the secret to that? Was it just Darren? What was the work that went into that? And again, how did you sort of push that internally to get that going? So,
1: um,
2: you're talking about the last three months of last year. Mm-hmm. Um, we
1: had multiple very favorable features in the New York Times, which is great when you have the New York Times as your hometown paper. Um, we had an op-ed in the Times, we had op-eds out on the coast, we had a great series of articles in the architecture press and in the New York Times about the, build, the renewal of our landmark building. Um, we rolled out this new program announcement, and series of things that we were doing to our constituents directly, but then got great coverage in the philanthropy press and blogosphere around that. Uh, and we uh, ended the year with a big feature on Darren and the New Yorker. So uh, to answer your question, when uh, my nephew was seven years old, and the family is away at the um, mountain retreat in the cabin and we were playing poker one evening and this was the night that he learned to play poker. If anyone has ever taught a kid to play poker, you know how they love when they learn to bluff. It's like the biggest thing, They boom, is their minds like "Oh, I'm going to bluff. And so we all sat there and we watched him bluffing us and all the adults smiled to themselves and very proud. He's going to try and bluff. We're all going to bet big, go along with it. Until he wiped us all out with a royal flush. And a royal flush is the most difficult hand to get in poker. And after the general clamor and in the room had ended, because no one could believe the seven-year-old had knew how to play a royal flush. After the clamor died down, uh, my, grandfather, my father, Benji's grandfather, sat back in his chair and um, gave him some advice. He said, Benji, as long as you live, no matter how much poker you play, you will never, ever get that hand again. (laughs) (laughs) I thought that was great advice. And and I told that story to our whole staff and our uh, president when I was giving an account of the end of year that we had. We will never, ever get that kind of thing again. Um, But what did it come from? Um, you know, we had a very deliberate strategy during the year um, to build on the strength of our president. Here's a guy who um, wants to get out and talk to people. That's, he's, he's terrific at it. He loves he's doing really it. Good. He has a natural gift. So building around his speaking, so we had a four part platform for engaging in the world and we wanted to engage Darren wanted to engage because he understood as a new president that for A foundation like Ford to be impactful, uh, you have to be relevant. And these days, to be relevant, you have to be visible. Um, To be visible, you have to have something to say. Uh, So we thought about these four spheres of engagement that started with his speaking and writing. So he was out every night, literally every night, week after week after week when he became president, speaking at receptions, doing all kinds of talks, um, accepting awards, whatever it was. And he loved doing it, Um, so that was great. And then we would take those pieces and transform them into written pieces and push those out. And those became the backbone, because once there was a sort of a a critical mass of visibility, then the journalist class who go to those functions start noticing. And then they come around and say, there's something going on over there. And then one piece, and then that yields more invitations for speaking, and it leads more media. And we tacked on good social media and good live events. On those are the four spheres of engagement and we really pushed on all four of those. So that's what and a lot of luck
2: Cool. I can't with it was a lot of luck um, but We worked so we'll go to your questions now and I have a carrot and a stick uh, There's food and more drink once the questions are over so don't no, uh no talkie-talk, right? Uh, and the stick is if your question sucks I've got two in reserve and I'll just cut you off and that's my question <laughs> So if you go on and on with the classic DC Think Tank thing, we're not going to play that here. So wait for the mic. Maggie has a mic. Uh, say what your name is and who you're with. But again, no speeching. Uh, we are recording this, so please wait for the mic to talk. I see a question. Some of you raised their hand back there. Center row, two rows in. Come on in.
0: Hi, I'm Danielle Reyes with the Crimson Bridge Foundation. And uh, you've talked about like word choice and the change of language that you, you've used. And I'm wondering how you've also looked at platforms to communicate, not just uh, what you're communicating, but if that's also factored into the reach you're trying to have.
1: Yeah, totally. Um, uh, absolutely. I mean, when you're out at live events, you have to be engaging. Keep the audience interested in that. And then, so again, you're not in that more intellectual mode. You're more in an, I'm in front of an audience. I'm engaging. So that changes how you write. And it, it, it advantages these kinds of lessons over the more technical style of writing, um, but you know, also in digital spaces, um, we have learned again through great um, conversations with um, outside organizations like Atlantic Media Strategies that we—it's not good enough just to write a pretty decent blog. You're trying to create, uh, in the words of Gene Allen Cowgill, um, social things. You know, oh, did you see this thing? It's a wonderful thing. I want to give you this thing.
2: And it's got to be in like vinyl lettering above her desk. That's all she ever talks yeah, about. Yes, talks things. about that. She's yeah. standing outside the room yeah. now, so oh, I have to throw that in. Oh, how are you? you see a joint? Sorry.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but you know, so you're trying to create something like actually a little thing that people want to look at, and say, "Wow, I get it," and I want to give that to someone else. So that form also advantages these kinds of lessons. So I think communication, you know, this is going from more formal and uh, more reserved to these less formal forms, and that's opening up all kinds of opportunities for us. And I think it's also why we have to relearn um, how we do it uh, and take on board these lessons.
2: I'd, over here. This space available for renting if you want to you know, later. Sorry.
1: Hi. Uh, my name is Cecilia. I'm a freelancer. I have
0: two questions in one. Okay.
1: <laughs> the, it, I was wondering when you're saying about simplifying the language and making it more direct, it also makes it very simple to, uh, it makes things clearer. Like when you use the
0: example of um, Wall Street and their fast talking people wanting to get rich, right? Doesn't it create a little bit of a political problem internally when
1: you're going to sometimes describe people that you work with afterwards or organizations that you work with by saying they're dead? You can imagine. We have members of the board who are big-time Wall Street financiers, and they did not like that language. Fast-talking mortgage breakers and Wall Street speculators learning to get rich quick. But as much as they didn't like it, they also realized it's true. Um, so... Yes, you have to be willing to walk
2: the talk, and luckily we have leadership that's willing. Yeah. I guess the question is: sometimes the foundations are the one, the funders are the ones that are actually pushing some of that really boring language on the, their fundees. Yes. Like, so is, is that a oh, right? Totally. Wow, and, oh, totally. And oh, And so I wanted to say this: there's a whole thing about over. It's sort of,
1: um, we, we have this idea about um, transforming the culture of communications in our own organizations. Because as a funder, uh, we know that many of those we fund may, in some horrible uh, symbiosis, attempt to parrot the language they see on our website, or that they hear our program officers speaking. Uh, And so, yes, we have an absolute responsibility to do this better and do it right. So starting with ourselves and changing that culture of communications, and learning from the people who are already doing it better than us, Um, which is another thing that's great about this network is this mixture of different kinds of organizations.
2: Cool. There's a right there. Um,
0: Um, so building on that question, I am a secret program staff plant. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I'm curious about if you've looked at how, uh, proposals or evaluations can be communicated differently so that we're not encouraging this overly technical style of communication that might cover up what's actually happening in a program or might solicit or encourage?
2: It's a really great question and we have I'm not gone there I, yet. I do not want to be involved in running grant proposals as the journalist in the room. So can you make
1: it so we're not involved? Just it's kidding. it's yeah. really, uh, it's, <laughs> it's, it's a great question and we haven't thought about it, but what we are doing this summer, we have a, a worldwide meeting of all our program staff and we're starting small with a jargon busting workshop, which, um, I think will help get us there. But that's really great, and thank you for raising it. We're going to go there next.
0: Hi, I'm Erica with the Schusterman Family Foundation. And I'm wondering if you learned anything about speaking about the intangible. Good jobs and good schools make a lot of sense, but we do a lot of work in talking about strengthening identities and things that can't really be seen or touched and how to do that in a way that makes sense.
1: Yeah, um, I don't have any real practical
2: tips right on the top of my head. But you are are talking about people, eventually, human beings are involved. Yeah, and that's where I was going too. which
1: is totally agree with that. Our sensibility about it is you can get there and you have to try. And even these, we deal in a ton of concepts too, believe me. Um, Because a a lot of it is advocacy work at the highest level. It's not like front lines um, service delivery stuff. Um, which is more tactile and concrete so I totally get where you're coming from. So you have to start with a commitment. We must figure out how to do this because even at a high conceptual level for most audiences, not your technical audiences, technical audiences want to engage at that highly conceptual level but your general audiences um, it it will fall flat so you have to be smart about who your audiences are and commit to finding ways and our commitment has been through the research. our investment has been backing that commitment not to do the research for ourselves but to share it with everybody. So, but whatever we learn, we'll share.
2: A couple more questions. If there's any left. Oh, over here, Susanna.
0: Uh, Susanna Murley, I'm with the Sunshot Initiative at the Department of Energy. And it's interesting to hear you talk about this uh, because as a Government communicator, we deal with a lot of the same issues. And I'm just wondering if you have any recommendations from a government perspective how we could do better.
1: (laughs) In fact, Um, so we just uh, finished um, uh, uh, RJB from Hadaway Communications is standing in the back. We just finished a big piece of work um, with government um, that Ford supported and Hadaway carried out um, having to do with um, government effectiveness and place based type of work and how to communicate that and they've done it's great work. It's tremendously valuable um, for any kind of branch of government that's trying to figure out how to communicate the successes of what government does. That's one. Answer one. Answer two, what it means to be American is um, filled, chock full of insights about how to talk to people about things that government ultimately has a hand in and make those things relatable to people. So that's a second resource um, that we can make available. And the third one, I can't
2: remember what it was, but there's another one. One more question, there.
1: Hi, I'm Gabriella Schneider. I work at Issue One, which is a bipartisan money and politics reform yes, group. Are. Yes. And um, I'm curious if
0: as you're researching Americans, you're diving in a little bit more into the problem of polarization and how do we find the common ground to talk not at each other but together?
1: Thank you for asking that question. I'm so glad you asked that because I failed to mention that the whole what it means to be American enterprise is designed to do just that, to transcend the political divide, not feed it. Um, We recognize that people are tired of the uh, political divide and the language that um, shapes it and drives it. They're hungry for something else. Early research we did really validated that. Um, And the way that Americans talk about these issues is very different than the way that Washington and other kinds of political and policy types talk about. It's very different. So yes, the whole enterprise of this research is to um, transcend the political divide and therefore can be useful to um, communicators anywhere along the spectrum. Because the whole insight is, to, is about where Americans are, and how do we connect with them um, on issues that matter to us. And it's, it's, it's oversampled um, on young people and among people of color. Uh, it's a huge national survey that we've done over 2,000 people. So it's very robust. Um, and it's fully segmented, or it will be fully segmented. Um, so it's going to be a tremendous resource for any kind of work and organization
2: we call it here, narratives of national renewal. We're trying to change the conversation that people are renewing themselves out in the country, either through policy or through. So the same kind of concept of just yeah. trying to get people to sort of talk in a way that is sense of... Narratives? Narratives of, of national renewal. National renewal. Okay. Yeah, the idea that things are happening better. So, uh, drink is there. Wait, wait. there's one more question oh, one, more there. There. Sorry. one more
1: question, One oh, more question back there. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, communications is contextual. It has to do with culture and histories and um, all kinds of other things, um, cultural habits and norms. So I think we're learning very broad lessons from this, but not specific ones that are applicable. But the people who work for the foundation in um, countries outside the US are fascinated with what we're learning because it's charging up ways for them to think about what we should be doing there differently, but it's not translatable
2: at all. You really have to get into the context, um, context by context. Great. Uh, Sean and I would like you to take a bag. They're very handy. (laughs) Thanks. Please sign up for a Com DC meetup group. You all, most of you got that invitation there or uh, for our Twitter account, follow us at ComNetWork DC. And I wasn't kidding, this space is available for rent, but right now it's party and cocktail. <laughs>